So first off, I just want to say thank you for allowing me to come up here and open up and proclaim the Word of God and the Gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not something that I take lightly. It's an honor and a privilege. And by God's grace, I uh, actually enjoy doing this. It's something that I love to do. So to be able to do this here with my church family um, on a Sunday evening, I feel extremely blessed to be here. Um, so originally last week when Pastor Greg had asked me to fill in for him tonight, uh, I was pretty sure I could do it. I knew I had some what I call skeleton sermons in my computer where I had some outlines and stuff put together. None of them are really complete or finished, but uh, something that I could work with and, you know, have something for you guys here tonight. And so I found this one in 1 Peter that I was originally going to preach out of chapter 2. And so I was preparing myself, just getting to know the text, reading through the book. I was just struck by the greeting here in 1 Peter and just amazed how, when I, as I can just continued to read through it, how rich it was. And when you just look at, at who's writing it and, and what he's just coming right off the bat, what he's what he's reminding these people of as far as their identity, I felt that the Lord was leading me to preach on a greeting, two verses. So if I could get through this greeting and all that you come away with is that in order to fulfill the calling that God has put in our lives in the context that he has placed us in, in our church, in our cities, in our communities, in our homes, it's going to require us to constantly come back to what he's accomplished for us on our behalf in our redemption, the, the grace that he's poured out on our, our lives. And so if I could get that point across to you guys tonight with some clarity and without inadvertently preaching heresy through my nervousness, <laughs> then I'll call that a win. So I'm going to go ahead uh, and I'll read through these two verses, and we'll pray again, and we'll get it started. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the ability and the privilege to be up here and open up your word and share it with my brothers and sisters, your children, Lord. Lord, I pray that you just give me the ability to speak with clarity and just show my brothers and sisters here what you have shown me through this text, Lord. That you are a God who loves to lavish his grace and mercy and love upon his elect, upon his people, Lord. That you are a God who has called us, yes, as elect exiles, Lord, in this world. But elect exiles who are called to engage the culture and become agents of change within it, Lord. 
And in order to do that, Lord, we are going to have to lean on your redemptive work and the power of the triune God in our lives, Lord. We are going to have to draw heavily from the grace that you have poured out on our lives. Lord, help us to never forget that and to always have that be at the center of our identity, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We bless your name, in Jesus' name, amen. So, as we get started here, what I would like to do, because I feel that there is some significance in it, is to take a look at who's writing this letter. As if the name of the book didn't give it away. Yes, it's Peter. Uh, but besides the title, First Peter, as soon as we open up this letter, the very first word in the very first verse of the very first chapter is a clear giveaway too. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I would like to take some time to kind of unravel who is this apostle who's named Peter. I would challenge you, brothers and sisters, to look at this title that Peter uses for himself as more than just an introduction to his letter or a mere formality used in a greeting, introducing who is writing or, in this case, dictating the letter. It may seem insignificant on the surface, on the surface and we may gloss over it on our way to the main body of the letter in pursuit of the theologically meteor portions. But there is a lot to be said and learned about who the author of this letter, about the author of this letter who refers to himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Before he was an apostle, Peter was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And quite an infamous disciple he turned out to be. As a disciple, Peter has some very memorable moments. Moments that we might expect one to have while walking through first century Palestine for three years with the incarnate living God. During our Lord's earthly ministry, Peter had witnessed numerous healings. He had witnessed our Lord cast out demons. He was there when Jesus showing his power over creation. I'm sorry, I lost it. He was there when Jesus, in showing his power and dominion over creation, told a storm basically to stop it, stop being a storm, and to listen to him. Peter was one of the three, the other two being James and John, who went up to the top of the mountain with Jesus and was allowed to see Christ in all his glory, an event we refer to as the transfiguration. And then there was the time when Peter, along with the other 11 disciples, were in the midst of getting tossed around in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, when they look out and they see Jesus walking to them on the water. Peter, being Peter, calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, okay, Peter, come on. So here's Peter, he's stepping out of the boat in rough waters in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking on water. 
It's amazing. Now, we all know that Peter's supernatural maritime experience didn't last long. In a moment of fear, panic, and doubt, Peter came more fo- became more focused on the wind and the waves than he was on the one who commanded them. And as a direct result of what our Lord would later diagnose as a lack of faith, Peter, or should I say Petros, which means little stone, sank like a rock. Which brings to light the fact that along with those memorable mountaintop moments, Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ, had some less than memorable moments too. There were moments where Peter was humbled by our Lord, such as the case in the event that I just mentioned where Peter couldn't stay afloat in the Sea of Galilee. There were moments of misplaced zeal, like the time during Jesus' arrest where he unsheathed his sword and he chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Then there was the lowest of low points in Peter's ministry, the denial where Peter, after three years of essentially living with Jesus and being taught by him, after witnessing and experiencing all of his teaching and all of the miracles, at the trial of Jesus, denies three times any and all association with his Lord. Just imagine having what's your most darkest, shame-filled, guilt-ridden moment of your existence recorded in a book and read and reread and reread for 2,000 years. Well, that's what happened to Peter. And let us be thankful that it was written down. Because here's the grace in all that, brothers and sisters. When Peter's faith was found lacking in the white-capped Sea of Galilee, it was Christ who lifted him up and walked him back to the boat. When his misplaced zeal led him to chopping off another man's ear, it was Jesus who restored that man's ear. And when Peter, out of cowardice and overcome by the fear of man, denied and abandoned Jesus in his time of need? It was the resurrected Christ who reinstated Peter, commissioned him as an apostle and a leader of the early church, sending him out to proclaim the gospel of the risen Christ. Peter was a man who knew and had experienced the radical grace of God. This is great news for us, brothers and sisters of grace. And here's why. When the storms of our lives begin to overwhelm us, when our job security is threatened, our finances take a hit, we may respond like Peter, quick to take our eyes off of Jesus. When marital problems or health issues toss us around and destabilize our lives, we forget, or even worse, we doubt that Jesus is in the midst of the storm with us, a storm that he's sovereign over. We display our misplaced zeal on social media in the comments sections 
or at family and social gatherings doing more damage in the name of Jesus while trying to defend him? And yes, just like Peter who denied association with his Lord, we must admit the cowardice and the fear of man that Peter experienced during the early morning prior to the crucifixion, we too are very familiar with. We need to look no further than the moments of our lives, and we all have them, when we know that we should have shared Jesus with someone that God had put in our path. Yet because we were unsure of how they might react or what they might think of us, we remained quiet. And in all of this, and all our lack of faith, does God regret saving us? Does he throw his hands up in frustration saying, when are they going to finally get it right? No, of course not. The Father through Christ lavishes us with his grace and his mercy and his love. In love, he lifts us up and places us on the rock. He restores and reconciles our broken relationship. He commissions us as ambassadors of his kingdom and sends us out as proclaimers of his good news. I am so grateful for Peter. Because if Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ, can go on to be Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, that means there's hope for a sinner like me. What a testament to the awesome saving power of Jesus and his gospel. Everything Peter had become and all that Peter had been called to do was only possible because of his new life in Christ and the grace applied to him. Or supplied to him, sorry. This is the redemptive power of the triune God and Peter, that Peter is going to have to remind the recipients of this letter about. He's going to have to call them to endure and persevere in their faith through suffering and persecution dealt by the hands of those closest to them. He's going to call them to holy living and obedience to Christ in a culture of licentiousness. And he will call them to submit to a government and show honor to a people who will also slander, insult, and mock them. Only by being reminded of and focusing on God's redemptive work in their lives will they find the ability to endure and persevere. So we'll look at the text again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here we have Peter, much later on in his life, writing from Rome to Christians located in five different provinces in the Roman Empire. The region where these churches were located was in what is now modern-day Turkey. These were provinces where those who resided and resided there and called these places home would have been rooted in or at least exposed and accustomed to Greco-Roman culture, paganism. It is likely that the recipients of this letter would have been churches made up of mostly Gentiles, though undoubtedly there were some Jewish Christians mixed in these churches. In fact, when Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, there's 
a mention of some Jews who were from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia and were present and heard the gospel sermon that day. It is very likely that some Jews had believed the gospel that day and took this good news back home with them and began to share it with their Gentile neighbors. Over time, what ends up happening is that these Christians begin to multiply and we have what is a mixture of, of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians making up these churches that who the members are referred to as Peter in this letter as elect exiles. Now, what does Peter mean by the title elect exiles? Just to say it, it sounds a bit oxymoronic, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Doesn't elect exile sound a lot like chosen rejects or chosen outcast? In chapter 2 of this letter, Peter will refer to Jesus in a similar way as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we have this rejected yet chosen dichotomy. Brothers and sisters of grace, let me just pause here for a moment and remind you that because you have been washed by the blood of Jesus and clothed in his righteousness, you too are chosen and precious in the sight of God. Not by any merit of your own, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. You are chosen and you are precious in the sight of God. Now these elect exiles were not exiles in the literal sense. These were Christians who were from these provinces and called these provinces home. However, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their association with his name, they have experienced a spiritual exile. They have effectively become exiles in their own land. Their decision to follow Christ in a pagan culture was not a popular one. In an environment where the norm was to worship a multitude of gods, including Caesar, this group of exiles claimed that there is only one God, and he has made himself known through his son, Jesus. That alone was enough to bring some heat on the camp. Now, if you think about the, the multitude of gods that this culture worshipped and how that was widely accepted, but to say that there's only one God and the only way to know him is through Jesus, well, that's very similar to what we see today, isn't it, church? In our politically correct, don't want to offend anyone or make any claims to objective truth culture, it is okay to say that my truth may differ from your truth. You just have to find what truth works for you. Or there are many paths that lead to the same God or same destiny. You just have to find one that fits you. Those positions are tolerated. But once you start to deconstruct the, their little logic in there and start saying things like, Truth is not only objective, but truth is a person, and his name is Jesus, and no man comes to the Father except through him. Well, ladies and gentlemen, now you've put a target on your back. Just like these first century Christians that Peter is writing to. As a result of their new life in Christ, these once pagan Gentiles would no longer participate in the religious and social practices of their family members 
and friends. Practices that Peter would refer to, he'd list some. He'd say drunkenness, uh, uh, what was the, uh, I, lawless idolatry, orgies, uh, life's uh, pursuing the passions of the flesh, things of that sort. Practices by which, by their participation, would have reaffirmed their commitment to their gods and their culture. To turn their back on their paganistic beliefs would have been interpreted as an abandonment of their community and its way of life. It would have been thought that they would have aroused the anger of their many gods and any ill fortune that their community may have encountered would be blamed on these Christians. It would have brought embarrassment and shame on those who were related to these Christians. Longtime friends would have distanced themselves, possibly even cut off all ties to their buddies who are now part of this unfamiliar faith. And if it wasn't enough, being a Christian would have attracted unwanted attention from Roman officials who are now having to deal with this sect of people who cannot and will not bow and worship Caesar as Lord. These early Christians would have had many practical reasons to abandon their faith and go back to their old way of living. Now, I'm sure we have experienced similar situations, maybe not as extreme. We do live in a country where, though, the tolerance and the acceptance of Christianity is waning, it is still generally, uh, we're still generally not persecuted for our faith yet. But we, when coming to Christ, may have lost relationships. I know when the Lord saved me, that to go around my old friends, I would be looked at as different because I wasn't doing, I couldn't do, not because I was any better, just the Lord had changed my heart. And so I felt that disruption in the relationship of buddies and even some family members. However, as they continued in their faith and devoted themselves to this new life in Christ, Peter foresaw them encountering and growing in an amount of suffering and persecution. Throughout this letter, Peter encourages them to endure and persevere through the trials that, they are going, that are going to come. He exhorts them to respond to slander, insults, and social exclusion in a manner that brings glory to God, not to repay evil for evil, but rather to bless others. This is not the type of treatment that one would expect as a citizen in their own nation or their own land. This was treatment reserved for foreigners, strangers, people who threatened the status quo. It makes sense now why Peter would refer to these believers as exiles. As the people of God, they were now first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. They pledged their allegiance to King Jesus, not Caesar. They operated off a totally different value system. They now valued what Jesus valued, not what their culture valued. They placed importance on what Jesus taught was important. Loving God and loving neighbor, proclaiming the gospel, praying for the lost, serving their brothers and sisters in Christ, caring for the poor, living lives of holiness, and hoping in the return of Jesus. Their whole lives were now reoriented, reoriented around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were living Christ-centered lives. 
This is the truth that, this first century, that these first century Christians believed and embraced. This is the truth that shaped and defined their lives so thoroughly that it caused them to be seen as, seen as and treated as exiles in their own land, amongst their own people. Would we even dare to ask God to make us like these believers? Would we dare to pray a prayer to our Heavenly Father and ask Him to stir up a revival in our hearts, in our homes, and in our churches that would cause us to live so radically different from the culture around us that it caused them to treat us like exiles and outcasts? Would we pray that prayer? I'd have to admit, it scares me. These believers are experiencing firsthand what Jesus spoke about in John 15. In John 15, 18 18 through 20, he says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the the world hates you. He goes on to say, they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what's Peter's advice in these circumstances? How does he expect these Christians who are facing a pretty tough road up ahead to actually endure and persevere through these trials? What's going to motivate them to not give up on their faith when the persecution and suffering comes? What's going to be their source of strength and hope when they have none for for themselves? Peter is going to remind them of their salvation in Christ. He's going to point them back to the saving grace of the triune God who holds them secure in in Christ Jesus. So he reminds them in verse 2, that yes, they are elect exiles, but they are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And I see that I'm running short on time here, so I'm going to try to get through this. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is saying much more simply than just that God knew that these people would one day be his people. What Peter is saying here is that in eternity past, before any of these people existed, before the creation existed, God the Father had a plan of redemption that would result in him pouring out his love, grace, and mercy upon his elect, his chosen. This plan would be carried out in physical space and time as as the Son Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, accomplishes what the Father had planned, ransoming his people from the curse of sin and death. Now as the gospel goes out and is proclaimed, the elect will respond to it in faith as the Holy Spirit draws them to the Son, regenerates them, making it now possible to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and repent from a life of sin being sealed by the Spirit and set apart as righteous and holy before God once and for all. This is the sanctification of the Spirit. But it doesn't stop there. The Holy Spirit will continue to progressively sanctify the believer in practical ways, causing them to grow and mature in their obedience to Jesus Christ. 
See, our God doesn't just declare us holy and righteous in Christ, but he loves us so much that he gives us his spirit to actually grow us in our practical holiness and obedience to Christ with an understanding that this will be an ongoing work until he calls us home to glory. And he will call us home to glory. And since this is an unconditional covenant that, covenant that God himself has made with his people, it is ratified by the sprinkling of with his blood, which refers to the atoning work of Christ that can never be annulled. God will never change his mind about saving you. He is in it for the long haul. Now I'm going to get to the good news. Now tell me where at in that plan of redemption do we see our contribution? It has been said that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Nowhere do we see our contribution. The Father ordained it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. It is all a work of the triune God. It's all through grace. And when you actually come to understand the grace of God, peace comes with it. That's why he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The understanding of and reliance on God's saving grace is what is going to be the hope that these exiles, that us as believers here in 2018 in Santa Maria, California, are going to lean on in order to fulfill their, our calling. It's going to be the truth and hope that allows them to endure, allows us to endure and persevere through suffering and persecution, through trials, through ups and downs. He's pointing them back to their salvation. He's pointing them back to their redemption. When the going gets tough, what do we lean back on? Who we are in Christ, the grace of God, the redemptive work that he's done in our, our lives. That in understanding that no matter what may come our way, no matter what trials or, 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 or tribulation or, or whatever we may face, the bad health reports, the family member who walks away from Christ, the losing of a family member, our our strength, our identity is found in what Jesus Christ has done for us and that grace that he continues to lavish and pour out on us throughout our lives as we come to him daily through word and prayer, through the fellowship of the church, as we experience that grace more and more, the more peace and peace we get because we understand that he is sovereign, he is in control, he has done it all. I, I hope, too, that if in the future I get to speak to you again to continue to go through this letter. I, I understand I couldn't touch all the themes and, and everything that Peter was getting across here. But I felt that if I was to present this greeting to you by understanding just the importance of the grace and the redemptive work of our God in our lives and the importance that Peter has experienced in his life of that truth and how he's trying to pass this truth on to these recipients of this letter that it would set a good foundation or that if you were to go home and to read through this book you would have some sense of understanding of, of where Peter's going to take these people in this letter. So I'll, I'll leave with a couple questions for you guys to ponder here tonight. Where in your life are you relying upon your own power? Around, on, on your own strength? 
It might be those areas of our lives where we are most anxious about, where we are most frustrated or stressed. And two, what would those areas look like if we entered into them focusing on and relying on the redemptive work of the triune God in our lives? I know for me, probably my most frustrating battles are being a father, raising kids. And sometimes in my frustration, because they're children, opportunities for me to display grace and to see this as a, as a, as a moment in time that can be redeemed by the gospel, I forget about that. And I dropped the ball. But praise God for his grace. That he allows us to continue on and to try a second time. So I'll go ahead and pray us out. Father God, I am so grateful for this, for this letter from Peter. I'm so grateful for Peter, Lord. Lord, knowing that you have placed us in this world at a specific time, at a, for a specific, at a, in a specific place, for a specific purpose, Lord, and that what you have called us to do, we can only fulfill. What you have called us to endure, we can only endure by leaning upon and relying on who we are in you, the redemptive work you've done in our lives, the grace that you've poured out on us, Lord. So, Lord, as Peter would call us exiles in our own land, Lord, we know we're, we're never going to fully fit in. We know we're always going to be looked at as different and weird, and it's okay. We're not going to shrink back from the culture, Lord. We're going to rely on your grace and your power and your truth, Lord, to endure, to persevere, and to be agents of change, change within the culture, Lord. It is a great privilege that we get to come alongside you, Jesus, and be a part of your work in world history, Lord. I thank you for my pastors here, Lord. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, Lord, who have allowed me to step behind this stand this pulpit, Lord, and open your word and just deliver a message, Lord, that I felt I needed to hear, if not more than anybody else. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for everything that your son accomplished on our behalf through his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for sending him, Lord. And we thank you for the ability to go out and be ambassadors of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.